why would a son of Jewish refugees decide to make a second home for himself in Berlin? There is this anarchic spirit. The city's bankrupt. You never know how it works, but somehow you just love it. Coming up, playwright Peter Wurtzman explains how Berlin is a magnet for people from around the world, while also haunted by a grim history. I have to pause and imagine who was here and whose ghost is still hovering here. In England, the town of Bath has been attracting visitors to its thermal springs for 2,000 years. It's still pretty nice. You can go to the pump room down by the Roman baths. There's a, usually a string quartet and a piano playing, and you can sit in the most ultimate elegance and have high tea. And Cameron Hewitt shares what it's really like to be a travel writer and guidebook researcher. All day long, you're asking strangers very obnoxiously specific, penetrating questions. It's all just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. Wherever I go, people tell me they wish they could be a travel writer and get paid to see the world. Given all the social media reviews you see for everything nowadays, a travel writer and guidebook researcher needs to offer something more useful to travelers than just his or her opinions. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, my senior writer at Rick Steves Europe shares what it's really like to scour the sights of Europe while writing compelling and accurate information. Berlin is the kind of city that leaves hints of its troubled history out in plain sight. Peter Wurzman fell in love with the city while living in a home that once belonged to a Jewish banker before Hitler turned it over to his minister of finance. Peter explains what it's like for a Jewish writer to chase the ghosts of Berlin in just a bit. Let's start the hour learning why the town of Bath is a great place to get over jet lag from a transatlantic flight. In just two hours west of London, you can soak in mineral springs, enjoy high tea, and admire a chorus line of attractive architecture. Tour guide and history expert Roy Nichols lives in nearby Dorset, and he's our guide. Roy, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. What is it about Bath? There's no city in England quite like Bath. It's an incredibly charming city. It is the best-preserved Georgian neoclassical building in Europe. It has innumerable listed buildings. Uh, It is just an absolute delight. The architecture is second to none. It must have had a lot of money to make all that beautiful architecture. Oh, yes. I mean, during the 18th century really was when it was at its peak, being turned from a medieval, quite conventional market town to the wonderful World Heritage Site that we today. And And it was money in all its forms, that drove the rebuilding of Bath. And today it's a popular retreat for wealthy Londoners because you've got a fast train connection that you didn't have in the past. Exactly. You can be from Bath to London in less than an hour and a half. Wow. So this is an easy side trip, and it's nice to get over jet lag when you're flying all the way from the States to Britain by going to a small town instead of dealing with London. And you land at Heathrow, you can go straight out to Bath. Exactly. It's a really easy connection, straight out to Bath, If you want to hire a car, it's a wonderful place to hire a car rather than all the stress and strain of hiring it in Heathrow. Take the train out, settle into your B&B or hotel in Bath for a couple of days, enjoy the city, and then go on drive to the Cotswolds. And the city, every time I visit, it becomes more and more pedestrianized. So it's quite comfortable just on foot, and and you have uh, this charmingness that's almost enforced. It just feels like it's so clean. There's flower boxes everywhere. In fact, isn't there a contest in England called uh, Britain in Bloom? Britain in Bloom, yes. It's a competition for all the towns and cities to see who can have the best flower displays, boxes, hanging baskets, all those sort of things. And Bath won it so many times that in the end... (laughs) <laughs> they said they couldn't take part anymore because yeah, it was just so unfair and everybody You're else. You're just too good, Bath, so just stop playing. Let somebody else win once in a while. 
And as you mentioned, it has more listed buildings per capita than any other building. Easy attraction to London, easy connection to London, and it goes way back to Roman times. That's what a lot of people don't realize. It's its name before Bath was a, what was the Roman name? Well, the, the Romans called it Aquasulius. They settled it very early on in their period of occupation of Britain. It was probably a pagan site before then, and they called it Aquasulis. So Aquasulis, the so mineral waters, healing waters. Yeah, there's both uh, mineral waters and the warm spa water that comes out of the ground. It's it's heated through natural geological formations. And so you can both drink the water and bathe in the water. And right from Roman times, right up to sort of post-medieval times, it really has had the same role for people to go along there, take the waters, relax, and really seek pleasure in all its forms. What a wonderful sort of compliment to London. You know, it is. I could imagine through the centuries, I'm, I'll see you next uh, Monday, darling. I'm going to Aquasulis to soak in the bath. And eventually the town became known as Bath. Bath. Batham in Saxon times, which then became Bath, and it, and refers, it really refers to the the, the, the water. hot water, the hot water. And now the baths were built for the public. One of my favorite Roman sites in all of Britain, and it's hard to imagine that there's so much great Roman uh, artifacts in in Britain. It, what was it called in Roman times? Britannia, Britannia was the Roman province. Is the beautiful golden bust of Minerva? That's right. They've got a, a replica actually in the museum itself. The the original one, I think, is in the British Museum these days. But when they excavated the site, which was completely forgotten about, although they'd found Roman remains over the centuries, so they knew it was a Roman settlement, but it was the late 19th century, the 1870s, when they first discovered the Roman baths. And they, it was something like 15, 20 feet below the then-present street level, but nonetheless it's the best preserved Roman baths in Europe. So you can wander around the Roman baths, and then there's the, the medieval baths, and even they've opened up a modern bath now. That's right, because they they're using the water as it should be used. So you can actually go along, take a spa, relax in the waters. It, it's completing a circle that really is 2,000 years old. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Roy Nichols, and we're talking about my vote for the most charming city outside of London in England, and that would be Bath, two hours west of London. And Roy, a couple hundred years ago, Bath was the ultimate social sort of place to see and be seen. Talk about that era in Bath. Well, time. in the late 17th, early 18th century, being seen in society was the most important thing. It controlled your status in society. It controlled whether you could move in society. You had to have all the trappings of that status, which meant your clothes, your house, all the things that really people would judge you from. And such was the extent that society was so prescribed that people would go to Bath and the way that they behaved, the way they dressed, what they drank, how they drank it, would all be controlled. And there was a gentleman called Beau Nash who was a, a famous dandy and leader of fashion, who essentially appointed himself a master of ceremonies in Bath and also Tunbridge Wells, another spa town, and he controlled the way that society acted within Bath for decades, right up until his death in the 1760s. So in the first half of the 1700s, we've got... I, I picture this guy with a, the equivalent of a top hat and tails and a baton like a conductor in an orchestra conducting all of the ridiculous, social, pretentious, show-off sort of things That's of the exactly highest society. how it would have been. But all stratas of society as well, because if you weren't the very, very top aristocracy, but you'd also have what was then the middle classes also aping their betters, and they would come to Bath as well, perhaps not always being able to uh, go to the great tea balls or the dances, but nonetheless doing the same thing that society was doing. Everybody trying to live up to everybody else's 
pretty ridiculous expectations. Exactly. You can even go to the costume museum in Bath, and I'm not that into costumes or fashion, but this is 300 years of fashion demonstrated one decade at a time with models dressed up in whatever was trendy during that decade for fashion. And these are all the original clothes. That's one of the amazing things, the way that survived over 300 years. And we we tend to take clothes in a very different way these days, unless you're involved in the fashion industry. But in those days, impecunious young men would invest every penny that they didn't have. Epicunious? Impecunious. What is that? Not having a great deal of money. Ah, A bit like me, really. (laughs) Um, And they would invest every penny they didn't have to give them the most extravagant clothes possible so that they actually could say that they were part of society and they could act in society. And when you go to Bath, you find these broad sidewalks, four times as wide as a sidewalk where we live, to accommodate women with these show-off dresses. Exactly, the great broad, bustled-type dresses that they wore in those days. And promenading was one of these aspects of this society. You had to be seen in your clothes. They actually have, they have a lovely walk called the Gravel Walk, which appears in Jane Austen, one of Jane Austen novels, at least one of them, whereby the people would wander up and down at certain times of the day to be seen. So you'd have mothers trying to find rich young men for their daughters and these young men trying to find rich widows or young rich daughters for the marriage for themselves. And you have all of these people struggling to show off and then you've got the architecture struggling to show off also. And this is Georgian architecture, which is what on the continent you'd call neoclassical. Yes, it's it's called Georgian in Britain because it really covers the periods of the Georgians, the Hanoverian kings that ruled from 1740 until the 1830s. So we call it Georgian, but it covers a a wide umbrella of those neoclassical styles. But I understand uh, Bath was sort of groundbreaking in Georgian architecture, and today you can see a couple of remarkable um, designs. What would you look for when you're in Bath Um, for Georgian? Well, you can actually see the whole spectrum of Georgian architecture. You go to places like the Royal Crescent or the Circus, and there you'll see really every aspect of that neoclassical architecture, the columns, the buildings. And it's just this perfect textbook neoclassical. And thankfully, there's one fancy residence on the Royal Crescent, I believe, that's open to the public. Yes, the city of Bath, what they've done is taken one of the buildings on the Royal Crescent, number one, the Royal Crescent, and restore it and refurbish it exactly as it would have been at its height in the 18th century. So you can go along and see the way that the very wealthy, because it is the very wealthy, would have lived. And they have found women who are surviving from the 19th century standing in every one of the rooms. That's right. It's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? Amazing preservation. Now, these women, the docents, they're volunteers. Yeah, they, they dress up in period clothes. It's as and if they, they were living then. Exactly. And, and it really does give you a wonderful introduction uh, really for us to understand how life must have been in the 18th century. And if that inspires you, a few doors away, there's a hotel that's on this elegant royal crescent, and you can go in there and have a high tea. That's right. It, it, you would never know it's a hotel. It's that high class, but it's one of the most elegant places to high tea. But there are also other places as well. You can go to the Pomp Room down by the Roman Baths. There's a usually a string quartet and a piano playing, and you can sit in the most ultimate elegance and have high tea. I love that. You go to the pump room, it's almost like Bone Ash is still there. In fact, I think you can see his portrait on, on the That's wall. Right. hanging he on the wall. He still presides over the way that we behave today. You can see a sedan chair. You can't ride in one, but you can no, see an old sedan chair. It really, and the thing about Bath, it does help to recreate the Royal Crescent, all the other buildings, the Costume Museum, the pump room, the Roman Baths. All of these help to recreate the past that is this wonderful city, Bath. And you can drink right there in the pump room the same water 
you can actually go up to the, the fountain and it's almost got the calcification on the fountain, it seems like, reminding you there are minerals in this water. That's right. It contains 40 minerals, I think it is. It's, um, you go into the pump room where you would actually take afternoon tea and you pay a small price and you take a glass of the water um, and it isn't the most attractive of drinks. Uh, I say it's encrusted with all these red minerals. There's a lot of ironstone in it. Um, and it has a very strong iron taste to it. Mm-hmm. Um, slightly cloudy, but very pure, mm-hmm. um, very good for you. They believed in those days that drinking the water in itself would actually make them healthy. But, of course, it also went along with a certain diet. And, of course, now we realise that it was probably more the diet than anything else that helped to improve their health. And speaking of diet, about three feet away would be a nice table where you could sit down and have tea and scones. That's right. You have the tea and the scones, all this wonderful clotted cream, drink the water, and you won't feel guilty. (laughs) It's a wash. That's great. Roy Nichols, thanks so much for helping us better understand Bath, a remarkable city, so accessible to London that people should have on their list. It should be one of the first destinations when you come into Britain. Great. Hope to see you in Bath sometime. It'll be a pleasure, Rick. Thank you very much. Information about Roy Nichols' private tours of Yorkshire and the Welsh borderlands and archives of his blog posts along the back roads of England are on his website, travelwithroy.com. A Jewish-American writer tells us why he loves Berlin in just a bit. But first, we explore the joys and realities of being a travel writer. It's Travel with Rick Steves. While many travelers might learn to ask, where is the bathroom, in the language of the country they're visiting, near the top of Cameron Hewitt's list of questions is, are you open on Mondays? Cameron is the senior content manager at my company, Rick Steves Europe. For more than 20 years now, Cameron's done the legwork of updating our guidebook listings and investigating what's new country by country. Cameron recently published his own book called The Temporary European to offer a behind-the-scenes insight into the daily grind of working as a travel writer. Cameron, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Rick. You know, your book is a collection of of your favorite experiences, inspiring people to be a temporary European, but you also share confessions of a professional traveler, and there's a whole chapter on what it's like to be a travel writer. Uh, You and I I'll never forget the the first trip uh, when it was back in 2001 or yeah, something. Yeah, 2001, 2002. Yeah. When you and I went together, and I got to show you around and show you my quirky way of doing uh, these guidebooks. And since then, you have single-handedly opened my program up to covering the eastern half of Europe. And now you're, you're a generalist that covers all of Europe. And uh, I've been really thankful for your help. And it was really fun to read the chapter on the joy of travel writing to remind me how quirky and fun it is. And uh, let's just talk about that. I mean... A good example is you've got a chapter called I've Been in Your Hotel Room. (laughs) What's that all about? Yeah, that's my sort of inside look chapter that where I kind of describe what I do when I do guidebook research. And uh, I think people are shocked sometimes. You know, you and I, a big part of our job as as guidebook writers is inspecting hotels. And that means we have to look at hotel rooms. And a lot of hotels will, you know, make sure you're looking at a room that's vacant. But I can't tell you how many times there are innkeepers who just say, oh, yeah, come on. And they walk down the hall and they throw open all the doors and someone's staying in the room. They're not there right at that moment. 
But it's sort of one of the sort of little fascinating side interests of my job is, you know, seeing how people the state that people leave their hotel room in as they go out for the day sightseeing. And I also think that captures what it's like to be a travel writer. You have this inside track. You know, you're trying to be a traveler and write for the general traveler. But you do have access to kind of some insights that other people don't. And I can't tell you how many days, literally days I've spent. I I mean, I'll get my my driver in Rome, uh, lay out all the hotels in a smart geographical order, and he'll just drive me, bing, 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 and I'll visit. 20 hotels in a day, and you climb every one of those stairs, and you play this game with the hotelier. They don't want to show you the bad rooms, you know? Right, exactly. And, and they also yeah. don't want to violate the privacy of their client, which they should be careful about. But we see a lot of rooms. We glance into a lot of rooms we're not supposed to see. And I get, I mean, you look in the hotel room and you go, oh, there's my book. And I, I autograph it a lot of times. So they get back up. How, <laughs> did, they, how did that happen? <laughs> I just you take never a, told me that. That's a great story. I take the liberty of autographing <laughs> <laughs> and they won't discover it until days later or something, you know? The thing I notice is, especially, it seems like Germans, they they tend to fold their pajamas on the pillow. That's that's the thing I've noticed, and I always there you go. kind of scratch my head. It's, <laughs> it's a very specific cultural thing. I think they must teach it in schools. <laughs> yeah, you can you can draw conclusions. And, um, I think a lot of people think, you and I have the ultimate job. We're, we're sitting there wearing a beret in Paris, sipping a pestis, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, waxing philosophical. Uh, but that's really not travel writing. Oh, no. It's incredibly <laughs> hard work. I, I'd say in the book, I think a lot of people are very jealous of my job. But if they shadowed me for one day, they'd probably run screaming because it's, you know, 12. I mean, honestly, some days, 12, 14 hour days of just running around a city. Yeah. And I always say it's you're asking a million people a million questions, which is obviously an exaggeration. But you end up asking people just all day long. You're asking strangers very obnoxiously specific, penetrating questions, you know. And you've got to be direct. You and you've got to be direct, yeah. And you've got to know that you're not, you're not a paid ad. You're not there to, to make them sound good. You're there to help the consumer. You are the hired hand of the consumer, not the hotel or the restaurant. And when we leave the hotel in the morning, I take the book and I put little boxes in the margin of all the things I need to visit or confirm. And I'm not into bucket list travel, but when I'm researching, there's sort of a bucket list there. I got to tick every one of those boxes. Yeah, and you have to be so organized because you're just all day long going place to place. You have to know when places are. I have this sort of. There's always I get stressed kind of mid afternoon because let's say I've got to go to five museums. I know what time each one closes and, right. and what time the last entry is. Right. And so it's sort of this cascading closures for me at the end of the day where I get to get yeah. to the ones first that close at four and then I go to the one that closes at five and then the one at six. And I just feel like I have this imaginary stopwatch ticking down over and my conversely, head. conversely in the morning, you know, the, the maybe the Colosseum doesn't open until nine o'clock, but the Church of uh, St. Peter and Chains, where we have Michelangelo's Moses, is just up the hill a couple blocks and it opens at eight. Yep, exactly. So you can go there first at eight and then you can go to the Colosseum and then we go to the next city and do it again. One of the interesting things is that balance of do we go incognito or do we say, hey, I'm writing a real important travel book and I'd like your help. Uh, that's a big question. And how do you how do you finesse that? People ask me this all the time when I when I bump into them on the road and they sit and they hear I'm a travel writer. Do the people know at the restaurant or the hotel know that you're a travel writer? And I mean, I think the short answer is if I feel like there's something to be gained by going, quote, incognito, I'll go incognito. Um, and sometimes we do. We have you know maybe gotten complaints about a hotel or I just have, there's something fishy about it. And in that case, I, I might walk in off the street and just yeah. pretend I'm a, yeah. a tourist looking for a room and ask to see the room. And then after I've, you know, done my inspection, I, I come back down and I reveal myself and, and, uh, and ask my <laughs> questions. Um, I, I do that too. I go through like, I'm going to be incognito here. And then I think I'm doing a really good job. And at the very end, they let me know, well, of, co- of course I know you, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're very recognizable. So I have, I have more options to, be, to keep it secret. <laughs> yeah, but I, I love that in a, in a restaurant, 
I don't need to be incognito because 10% of the people in the restaurant have my book. Yeah, yeah. So one of my fallbacks is talking to the people who are already eating there. And I'll walk in and I'll start to talk to somebody. And sometimes the waiter gets very defensive and they come <laughs> to the aid of the eater. They Because there's a stranger that just walked in off the street and they're harassing these people at the table. And he's <laughs> eating one of their, one of their broccolinis. <laughs> and I literally, I can test the food if I want to, you know, and, but I don't, but if, if I talk to them, if they don't like this, they're going to let me know because it's been a miserable evening and it's not a good value. And if they tell me this place is great, we've been here three nights in a row. Enough said, I'm on to the next restaurant. And I love bumping into people who are using our guidebooks on the road because they're the best possible spies. You know, we, we talk about, we can yeah. choose whether to quote, go incognito. Well, of course, our readers are always incognito, and they've, yeah. they've had this experience of the book, and we can find out what worked and what didn't. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cameron Hewitt, and Cameron has collected 20 years of travel writing experience into his book. It's called The Temporary European, and a big part of that book is sharing insights into what it's like to being a professional travel writer, a guidebook writer, and a researcher. And Cameron, when we do our research, and I probably, I think I spend an enormous year, 100 days in Europe, and a, a good third of that is with my guidebook in hand, updating that thing. And uh, I remind all my researchers, and I've reminded you, we want to live the book. I mean, it's not just checking the hours of the Louvre Museum. It's to live the book. What's, how confused are you when you stand on that square in Tallinn, Estonia? If I'm confused, my reader's going to be confused. How do you approach that uh, lint brush travel? Yeah, that's, that's the challenge because you're, uh, you know, we're experts, but we have to put ourselves in the shoes of novices. And yeah. so, you know, we have to read the material, even if we've been to that town 20... I mean, I have guidebooks where I've, I wrote it 20 years ago and it's, I've been back 20 times to update it. But even when I've been there 20 times... I still have to pretend I'm the first time I've ever been there and I'm just sort of fresh off the airplane and, and jet lagged and confused. And, and you don't have speak to, the language. You don't speak the language and you have to design guidebooks to meet people where they are, which is, again, jet lagged and culture shocked and not yeah. sure what to do. I'm kind of glad that I tend to be kind of overwhelmed and, and confused. And I sit there and I, if I haven't been there for a long time, I get off the train in Glasgow and I go, OK, no, what do I do? Yep. Because that's everybody's experience when they come in if it's their first time. Exactly. Hey, Cameron, the whole world, the environment of information for travelers has changed remarkably in 20 or 30 years. Uh, in the old days, it was just one printed guidebook, and there was not enough information. You needed to get that because there just wasn't. Now I think there's a glut of information, and like the same way as people get their information for important issues in life and politics, you got to be careful what your sources are. What's your take on all this crowdsourcing and uh, alternatives to the classic uh, printed guidebook. Yeah, and that's I think about that a lot. And you, you could make a case that guidebooks are kind of old-fashioned, but I will say when I'm traveling working on the guidebook, I run into people all the time who are using it heavily and learning a lot from it, and I can tell it's, it's really useful to them. I think the big competition is sort of the crowdsourced review sites like TripAdvisor or Yelp or those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think each of those has their place. So what I recommend is use an, an expert authority like a guidebook and also a collection of amateur reviews like a TripAdvisor yeah. site. And I think by having those together, you might get kind of a more complete view of what's going yeah. on. But a first-timer in Paris who writes into TripAdvisor, this hot chocolate is to die for. First of all, what chocolate is to die for? And how do they know that's the best in Paris? Well, exactly. And I think that's where someone who is using only online sources, especially these crowdsource mm -hmm. sites, 
Um, I don't really, frankly, care if someone's opinion that this is the best gelato in Italy if they've been to Italy once and had one gelato. <laughs> right. Whereas a, a guidebook writer, I think about this a lot. You know, my job is experiencing everything. My job is trying everything. Yeah. And so I have a naturally, even despite my years of expertise, I just have a broader experience than a typical tourist that I can really oh. compare apples to apples in that town and figure out what's best. And you travel with that challenge, that goal in mind exactly. of, of, yep. of sorting through all the superlatives. Exactly. And I think um, I'm, I'm really proud that we try to do things in kind of an old school way, but it really it really makes a difference. People want something where a person's actually been on the ground. I mean, yeah. you and I actually and all of our researchers, we actually go to all of the hotel. This is I tell people this and it just blows their mind. But if you have a guidebook chapter and I'm updating it, I physically, personally, literally yeah. go to the front door of every hotel, every restaurant, every museum, every laundromat, every tourist office, every train station. And I check everything personally. And that's very old-fashioned. And and the fact is, sometimes old-fashioned is good. And what's interesting to me is I've talked to people who are sort of skeptical about guidebooks, but when they get their hands on a really good guidebook, suddenly they, they treat it like it's gold. It's it's their Bible in the way that, you know, everyone kind of thought of guidebooks 20 yeah. years ago. I remember in the old days going to these conventions, the American Booksellers Convention, and all the travel writers got together. It was, it was called Booked for Adventure. And I got to meet all these people I admired and my mentors and great travel writers and when we have the equivalent today at a convention, it's a lot of people who are paid by how many clicks they get. Now, there's great bloggers, there's great stuff online, but if your whole motivation is how many clicks can you get, how does that impact your reporting? I mean, it's just human nature to go to what's what's sexy, what's dazzling, what's fascinating. I think that's what, what writers have been reprogrammed to do these days. I mean, I think the most clicked article I've ever written one of the most clicked was an article comparing the two sex museums in Amsterdam. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it just went through the ceiling. You know, it's just everybody's curious. So that's the job of a travel writer, though, is comparing. I mean, that sounds salacious, but it's our job to sort through the options and help people. Hey, if you're going to a sex museum in Amsterdam, here are the two choices and how they're different. Yeah. So that's a lot of what I feel like my job is. is it's to curate. Curate the information. There's and, too much information. Yes. we got to curate it. Your attention, please. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Cameron Hewitt, and his book is The Temporary European. And it's kind of several books in one. It's a collection of Cameron's very insightful travel writing, his greatest hits over 20 years. And it's also an intimate and candid look at the business of being a travel writer. The book is called The Temporary European, Lessons and Confessions of a Professional Traveler. And Cameron, speaking of salacious, there's a lot of um, tourist cliches and, and traps. And we have to respect those, but we have to talk some common sense to people at the same time. I mean, if you're going to Iceland, everybody's interested in uh, what puffins and, and Vol- you know volcanoes, volcanoes and, and glaciers and, and, and the midnight sun. Mm-hmm. If you're going to Scotland, everybody's interested in kilts and uh, bagpipes. I don't know what the local people think about all of that, but that really doesn't matter that much. Our travelers are hell bent on puffins and bagpipes. Uh, not good, not bad, but as a travel writer, we can steer that. Yeah, and a few years ago, I actually did spend a month in Scotland writing a new travel guidebook on Scotland, and I I have a chapter in my book that's sort of about the challenge there because there's so much cliché. Even the locals who are kind of jaded on it, they call it tartan tat. That's kind of the the tackiness of, you know, exploiting uh, Scottish clichés. But then Ah. I I think all you have to do is just kind of keep at it and try to find local alternatives. I had a, a day off, actually, and I went to this small town Highland Games, and by watching people wearing kilts 
and doing some of these events and the Highland dancing and so forth and playing bagpipes, I saw that it was really a part of their local culture because this was not, there are big kind of touristy Highland games. This is a little village that no one's ever heard of. And it it was clear to me, everyone at that attending there, virtually all of them were not tourists. This was local Scottish Highlanders celebrating their culture. And that was for me, after a whole month in Scotland, that kind of unlocked oh, there's really a, a basis for all of these cliches, and I, and I was able to write about it in a more thoughtful way and help people get to the truth and of those of course, cliches. you bring a broader context to it. You understand there's, there's a history to this and a broad cultural reason. They have fell running. Yes. I mean, when the British are coming, you run through the fell. That's right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's what you got to do. Yep. And uh, if you need to rally your troops, you squawk on your bagpipe. Yep. And, you know, you can put this into a cultural um, context, and then this tatten... What do you call it? Tat and, a tartan tat. Tar- they call it. Tat and tart. <laughs> this tartan tat. Uh, then that, that makes more sense. Cameron, we mentioned puffins, you know, and a lot of people go, oh, you can't eat a puffin. Well, the Icelanders eat puffins. Um, you know, we, I, we talk about foie gras. People go, oh, you can't uh, force feed the geese. We, we talk about brothels. In Frankfurt, they've got these high-rise brothels where all the prostitutes are there and they're paying taxes and earning a living. Uh, in Spain, you got bullfighting. People go, oh, you can't talk about bullfighting. You send people to Turkey and some people say, you can't promote a bad government. How do you, what is the ethic as a travel writer when you, you deal with these interesting but controversial and complicated issues. You know, I try to think of myself uh, partly as an anthropologist and and kind of an old school anthropologist is trained that you try to not be judgmental about it. You're trying to report back this is what this culture does and as much as possible you don't want to be judging well of course they shouldn't do this but this is what they do. And I think it's important for me if I'm reporting on a culture especially with a challenging aspect, I try to be open-minded. I try to present both sides to a certain degree. But at the end of the day, I think especially with some where there's an ethical component, I don't know that it's it's our job to tell people what to think about it. Right. We just I feel like I want to tell people, here are the pros and here are the cons. Here's an example. There's a lot of a debate around Airbnbs. You know, Airbnbs, right. some people are saying, well, they're very – first of all, they're very affordable and they're a great way for a traveler to live in a local neighborhood. On the other hand, they might be pricing out locals from buying first-time homes. And you and I wrestled with this, I remember, a couple of years ago. Um, and I think we can kind of state the pros and cons, and we both see the pros and the cons. Right. And I think we want travelers, you know, to be independent and make up their own mind about it. And we're not going to censor it. We're going to give our the context and then say, here's the story. Yeah, exactly. Cameron Hewitt's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He's the senior writer at Rick Steves Europe and recently published his travel memoir and confessions with an affectionate look at how the sausage gets made in the business of being a travel writer. His book is called The Temporary European. We have a link to Cameron's travel blog and photos in the notes for this week's show. You'll find that at ricksteves.com slash radio. Cameron, this is so fun to talk with you. And I'm actually, I wish I was 20 years younger, but I'm not. But you are 20 years younger. (laughs) And uh, you'll be doing this longer than me. I'm just curious, if you look ahead, you're in the middle of your career now, Um, How do you see the role of travel writer and the value of travel information changing in the next generation? I think people always want vivid, experiential, inspiring observations from travelers. And I think um, it's funny when I was writing my book, a lot of people told me, well, writing a book of travel stories is very old fashioned. No one's interested in that. But what I find is the book's doing pretty well. And then when I share these stories on my blog or on Facebook, they resonate with people. People love that opportunity to kind of have a a little peek inside what it's like to be having a great experience on the road. 
I mean, obviously things will change. Technology has changed things, and I think tastes change. You and I talk a lot about how you're you're a baby boomer, I'm Generation X, and and I think um, for me, food probably has a higher priority in my travels than it does for you. And I think I spend more of my time stay away from my cheese sandwich. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> on my personal travels, I spend a lot of time researching restaurants. Um, so there's a lot of differences, and I, I I would almost call them superficial. They're not superficial. I mean, they're right. significant, but I think fundamentally the value of good travel is always the same. And there's always going to be an appetite for somebody getting out into the world, experiencing things. There's a, there's a real timelessness to that. And the value of travel information to have that good travel, I think is going to be as important going forward as it has until now. It'll be true when I'm long gone. Absolutely, yeah. Cameron, thank you so much for joining us. It's fun to, it's fun to be a travel writer and it's fun to compare notes in public with another travel writer. Yeah, thanks for having me. Playwright Peter Wurtzman explains how an American Jew can fall in love with Berlin despite its dark 20th century history. He's even made it his second home. He takes us on a ghost dance in Berlin. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. When Peter Wurtzman first went to Berlin as a student in the 1970s, he immediately fell in love with the city. As the son of German-speaking Jewish refugees from Vienna, he's found that the constantly evolving energy of Berlin can stimulate a whole range of emotions. And making it his second home has required Peter to grapple with some powerful ghosts from its past. Peter's an accomplished playwright, author, and translator whom the Bloomsbury Review once called a 20th-century Brother Grimm. Peter joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about the memoir he wrote, after exploring the city's streets and buildings haunted by its difficult history. That memoir is called Ghost Dance in Berlin, a Rhapsody in Grey. Peter, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Rick. I'm really uh, delighted and honored to be on your show. Thank you. Now, tell us just briefly about your experience over the years in Berlin. When have you lived and why were you there, and, and how did it inspire you to write your book? Well, I should say for me, Berlin is loaded, is and always will be loaded, but isn't always will be really alive. I first experienced Berlin as a Fulbright scholar in 73. I remember telling the Fulbright Commission that this was a very difficult year for me. Um, I was actually based in Freiburg in the Black Forest at the time, and we regrouped in Berlin. And I remember arriving in Berlin and immediately falling in love with the energy of the city. At that time, there were two Berlins. There was the West Berlin and East Berlin. And this was a city that was really alive. This was a city where I suspected at the time, and now I'm convinced that the wild creative energy of the 1920s is still alive there, and that Joseph Goebbels, the at time Gauleiter of Berlin under Hitler, did not succeed in ridding the city of this anarchic spirit. The subtitle of your book, Ghost Dance of Berlin, is A Rhapsody in Gray. And then you write, the city is cold, unblinking, littered, sad with memorials. Uh, at the same time, it's a city that seems to give you energy. I think what's, what's amazing about this place is in its very grayness, it is one of the most joyous places that I've ever been to. Perhaps it's a longing for the sunny south. The sun doesn't show through until well into April. If you arrive, as I did on January 1st, you don't see the sun. You, it blinks at you, but you never see it. And yet there's something about this place, perhaps uh, people turned inwards, uh, the warmth of a cafe, the, the, the introverted nature, the, the bookishness, 
the raucous nature of this place, there's something unbelievably attractive about it. Now, you've written this incredible fantasy kind of story, the premise of your book. You've got ghosts that go back and forth from a a present-day perch on a lakeside mansion, and you you imagine these sets of ghosts, and one of them is uh, the exiled Jewish banker family that owned this mansion, and the other is uh, Hitler's minister of finance and his entourage that took over the mansion. And then you've got another gaggle of ghosts that look across the lake as they plan the final solution, the extermination of the Jewish race. And then you've got your characters jumping back and forth over what was the wall. Talk about how that helps you explain how you find Berlin so fascinating. 2010 was the coldest winter in the last three decades. And so I actually, in what I think of as a great Semitic tradition, walked on water. I took some ginger steps at first, and then I saw a hockey team skating across the lake. And I walked out into the middle of this mythic, infamous lake, Wannsee. Maybe many of your listeners have heard of the Wannsee Conference. This was one of the most horrible conferences in history where they decided upon how to uh, efficiently organize the mass extermination of a people. That's happening on one side. That's right next to the Lieberman Villa, Villa of Max Lieberman, a, a Jewish Impressionist painter who revolutionized painting in Berlin and then was turned out of the very academy that he had founded. The villa that I lived in was owned originally by the Arnholt family. The Arnholt uh, family were Jewish bankers, originally bankers to Bismarck. This gets into the very paradox of of Berlin life. Bismarck was an anti-Semite who, of course, had to have a Jewish banker to uh, finance his uh, growing um, imperial uh, needs and desires. The Arnhold family fled, and Hitler gave the house to Walter Funk, his minister of finance. And I, in my insomniac imagination, when one has insomnia, everything becomes metaphor in a way, I heard the rustling of ghosts around me. I speak in part metaphorically and poetically. I tried to imagine what these two presences, how could they could deal with each other, the presence of the Arnhold family and their guests. It was a villa in which there was a kind of artistic and literary salon, a salon reaching back to the 19th century, these great salons of Rachel Varnhagen. Rachel Varnhagen was a converted Jewish woman in whose salons the artistic and literary elite of Berlin, of Germany, gathered together, and who, several years later, decided, uh, this is after Napoleon's invasion, decided that they would no longer eat at table with their former hosts, and they founded the Deutsche Tischgesellschaft, at which uh, Jews were excluded. But Berlin has always been, I don't know if melting pot is the right word, this giant uh, oozing bratwurst of a place in which somewhat like the native Vienna of my parents, was a place certainly in the 20th century where you cannot extract the Jewish element from cultural life of this place. You wrote in your book, uh, to this day I often feel like one of those plump, round, hand-painted Russian wooden matryoshka dolls with a German embedded in my English, Yiddish inside the German, Hebrew pulsing in the Yiddish, and the universal cry of a newborn echoing within. It's like you're wrestling with your identity in a city that's wrestling with its own identity. And then I picture you standing on this frozen Wannsee. Is that where the idea of writing this book came to you, actually, when you're standing on that frozen lake, looking at the mansion, 
and looking over where the conference was being held that, that was scheming the extermination of your race? This was certainly where one of the ideas came from. There was something about Berlin. I can't describe the energy. I was happy to be alive. Now, is that in contrast to so much death around me? I don't know. I felt joyous. I can't explain it. I shot up out of sleep at dawn. I walked several blocks to the grave of the poet Heinrich von Kleist. I'm also a translator from the German, and I translated Kleist. And I communed with Kleist and asked if he wouldn't mind if I would borrow a couple of impressions from my stay. And every day I had new, vivid impressions that I had to communicate. And the book started in emails to my brother and sister that became fleshed out, and I, I just couldn't stop. I couldn't stop feeling happy. It's a little bit like that wonderful scene in A Christmas Carol where Alistair Stim starts dancing the day after he wakes up to find that he's still alive. And he, he says, I, he, I don't know if you remember his jig, I don't know anything, I know I don't know any." And there's this, this joyousness. I felt it every day waking up in the city of Berlin. Peter Wurtzman's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Peter's a New York-based playwright, author, and poet and he translates classic German literature into English. His travel essays have appeared in the Best American Travel Writing Series, and his historical plays are called Burning Words and The Tattooed Man Tells All. We're talking with Peter about his memoir, Ghost Dance in Berlin, A Rhapsody in Grey. It was called A Most Beautiful Evocation of a Tantalizing City by the late Jan Morris. There's more on his website, peterwartzman.com. You're of a Jewish-Austrian family. Both parents, yeah. I grew up speaking German as a first language. Now, this is the capital of Hitler and Nazism, and, and your book reads like kind of like a love story of Berlin. How can a Jew love Berlin? Well, first of all, I've always pursued ambivalence in my life. When I was growing up as a child, my parents were criticized by other family members for keeping the German language alive. And my mother's response was, to stop speaking German would be to cut their own tongue out of their mouths. There's been a Jewish presence in German lands along the Rhine ever since the Roman army first got there. It is a part of the history of the country. It is a part, for better and for worse, of the 20th century. And for me, on top of that, Berlin is this immensely creative city. It, it oozes art. It, it, it oozes creativity everywhere, which way you go. Everybody's got a story to tell. There is this anarchic spirit. The city's bankrupt. You never know how, how it works. The ice is not cleaned in the wintertime, which is a problem because the whole city is like an open skating rink. But somehow you just love it. You mm. love the people that you meet. You love the bratwurst that you eat on uh, Alexanderplatz. You love all the, the oozing fat of these pork dishes, which for me is the, the great taboo. And my father, being a very assimilated Jew from Austria, taught me everything that I was not allowed to eat, and the pleasure of eating everything that I was not allowed to eat. What is it about the German fondness of, of the flesh of the pig and then the Jewish abhorrence of it, and then how people like your Jewish-German father having to have that forbidden flesh even if it's not okay? I think the pig is a totem. Uh, it's the image that you see almost everywhere when you walk around Berlin, and it's the image, of course, for me of the forbidden fruit, forbidden flesh, that uh, my father taught me what you must not eat, and then turned it around and said, the pleasure of learning to eat what you must not eat. 
He would take us to a deli on a Saturday or a Sunday, Shalon Weber in New York, which was a sort of racy experience, a little bit like taking your sons to the culinary brothel. Uh, my mother <laughs> knew about it, but uh, shut her eyes. There was no pork allowed in the house. But uh, my father lusted after this meat. Ham way, Oh, Eisbein. Eisbein. Eisbein yeah. <laughs> you see it on every menu in Berlin. Eisbein. It's a mythic dish, the but nobody dish. dares order it. <laughs> no Americans dare order it. My father, he's not alive anymore, but I, I called out to him and asked my late mother's forgiveness, too, for waxing ecstatic and lyrical about this dish on a plate, which is an almost Neanderthal dish. You, you feel like a caveman attacking this piece of flesh, and it's, it's wonderful with a mug of beer. And, Peter, when you write about the bread, even, you write, nobody knows how to bake whole grain bread like the Germans. It tastes like it just came out of the oven of Hansel and Gretel. You you clearly have an affinity for German culture, even though your family was victimized by the Nazis. Is that not a struggle for you? Oh, it's a constant struggle. To my mind, it's the basic struggle of my life. Needless to say, the oven in Hansel Gretel is an ambivalent image. That oven was not only used for cooking bread, the witch intended to cook children in it. And then you talk about present-day Berlin's struggle against neo-Nazis and the graffiti you see in Prince Lauenberg where it says Berlin against Nazis and so on. I split my time between a villa on the Wannsee. There were no extra accommodations for my family who came with me to Berlin. So we sublet an apartment in Prenzlauerberg. And I was deeply moved in Prenzlauerberg because on May 1st, the traditional workers' holiday, neo-Nazis decided that they were going to march on Prenzlauerberg. It was going to be a statement. Well, they never got anywhere because... I joined the barricades of 2,500 of my neighbors who literally blocked the Nazis from taking steps into our terrain. And I felt deeply moved, and I felt one of them. I mean, the the young people on the barricades were moved to see what they called an old-timer. I didn't quite like looking at myself as an old-timer. And then when they found out that I was a foreigner to boot, I mean, they were moved. We, we hugged each other. I mean, it was it's a great city. And I am convinced that there was a cultural marriage between two peoples. It was a stormy marriage. It was a rough marriage. It was a dramatic marriage, which gave certainly the 20th century some of the best that it's ever seen and definitely some of the worst. But I firmly believe that Germans, at least of my generation, and I'm 60 now, Germans and Jews are both children of that cultural marriage that ended in a terrible divorce, Hmm. and that, in fact, we have a great deal to say to each other. We have a great deal in common, much more in common than we think. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Peter Wurzman. Peter writes a book, Ghost Dance, in Berlin, A Rhapsody in Grey. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Charles is on the line from Naperville, Illinois. Charles, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. Hey, Peter. I uh, want to tell you, it's sort of funny, I'm, I'm listening to you speak, and um, I too studied in Freiburg and Breisgau in southern oh. Germany when I was in college in, in 91, and I, I was lucky enough, I went on my own, which mostly I went with my friends, but uh, one weekend I went all by myself, all the way to Berlin, I did, took the all-night train, and had a wonderful time spending about 48 hours really hardcore hitting Berlin, and uh, I just loved it, I thought it was a great city, and I really exhausted myself, but I had great fun. But one of the one of the coolest things I did, I, I was a history major and a, and a German double major, 
before I went, I, I Xeroxed all these pictures from books of when the Russians were, were storming Berlin. And I had these Xeroxes, and when I was in Berlin, I, I, I took some time and found where the, the pictures were actually taken. And, and it was so chilling to see, like, there were so bullet holes in some of the columns and, and to stand where soldiers were standing, where all this history took place. And I just, I was wondering if, that, if that's still there or is that through all the rebirth of Berlin through the 90s and, and now, has that all been washed away or is that still there when, if you go back? One of my favorite little places in Germany is on top of the Reichstag building. And if you know where to stand and look, you can see bullet holes from there from the very last days of World War II. If you can imagine a country being invaded from both sides and the defenders finish their fighting on the rooftop, literally, of their parliament building, that's what happened with the, the Nazis on the last day of the war as the Americans were pushing in from the west and the Russians came in from the east and the last stand was literally on top of the Reichstag. And when you look at it today, that modern architectural type of the Reichstag, it looks a little bit like a prescient eye looking out into the future and onto the past. Oh, what a stirring building. That's that new glass dome that has been fitted yes. onto the bombed-out hulk of the previous Reichstag that was left as a memorial uh, throughout the Cold War, right on the no-man's land of the Berlin Wall. Now, when I went, they were still building that, but I would love to go back. Is it hard to get a tour of, you know, walk that big circle cavalcade? No, it's, it's very easy. You, 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 you just you, have to stand on line. You stand in line, you walk the ramp all the way to the very top and look down over the shoulders of the German legislators uh, from the very top of the dome of their new Capitol building. It's all about living history, Berlin. That's for sure. Thanks, Charles. All right, thank you. We're talking with Peter Wurtzman. His book is Ghost Dance in Berlin. Peter, you talk about, you know, these ghosts that are jumping back and forth and the frozen von Sea and everything and, and the wall dividing the city. And in a way, you also talk about the wall surviving metaphorically today. In fact, you talk about driving around town with a taxi who told you that the wall survives, but in money, not in stone. Uh, how does the wall survive today in your mind? Certainly, if you've been in Berlin long enough and you are of my age, you can quickly pick up who's an Ossi and who's a Wessi, who's an Easterner, who's a Westerner. You just sense it. Mm -hmm. That difference has disappeared in subsequent generations. My children were there with me, mm -hmm. and they didn't feel it at all. Okay, but people who spent their youth under communism, you're saying you can tell it today. Yes, but, mm -hmm. you know, there's communism, but I don't want to whitewash it, but there was also a social protective network that certainly the West didn't offer. Yeah. There, are, there are two sides to it. It's a very complex place full of complete contradictions. Oh, yeah, and that's the exciting thing to struggle with it as a tourist and as a writer and a historian like you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Peter Wurtzman in his book Ghost Dance in Berlin. Peter, are the ghosts still there? Oh, yes, they're still there. Perhaps most moving to me about the city of Berlin is something called Stolpersteine. Stolpersteine are these brass plaques that you are deliberately meant to stumble on, that is, the pedestrian is. They're polished brass plaques on which there are the names and dates of deportation of individuals who lived in each house. I find myself always perennially moved by this. I, find I have to pause and imagine who was here and whose ghost is still hovering here. Peter Wurtzman, Ghost Dance in Berlin, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rick. If I like that you're here, and I like that you're here, Happy New Year, my dear, so what? For the sun will rise, and the moon will set, and you learn how to settle for what you get. It'll all go on if we're here or not, so who cares, so what? 
Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We'll see you next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves Classroom Europe is a fast, free, and fun video archive. It's designed for teachers, travelers, and students gives you immediate access to some 500 short video clips from the Rick Steves Europe TV show library. Clips cover European history, art, culture, food, and geography. Google Classroom Europe or visit ricksteves.com to watch clips and create your own playlist. Teachers love it. Students do, too.